Conversation About Justice podcast. I am Sherrod Smith, a second-year law student at the University of Pennsylvania. I'll be your guest host today, filling in for Emily Sutcliffe. Today, I have the honor and absolute privilege of welcoming Ms. Kristen Clark to the podcast. Kristen Clark is the president and executive director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, one of the most prominent civil rights and racial justice organizations in the country. Founded at the request of President John F. Kennedy about a week after the assassination of civil rights leader Medgar Evers, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law engages the private bar to combat racial discrimination and the resulting inequality of opportunity. In effecting this mission, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law works collaboratively with community leaders, grassroots organizations, and other racial justice and civil rights organizations at the national and local level to promote fair housing and community development, economic justice, voting rights, equal educational opportunity, fair and equitable criminal justice practices, judicial diversity, and many other racial justice-related and civil rights-related issues. Ms. Clark has led an accomplished career dedicated to strengthening our country's democracy by combating discrimination faced disproportionately by African Americans and other marginalized communities. Ms. Clark spent several years at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, frequently referred to as the LDF. After, she joined the New York State Attorney General's Office, serving as the head of the Civil Rights Bureau. Ms. Clark started her off her career in the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice through the Attorney General's Honors Program. Ms. Clark has written numerous articles, books, and op-eds on issues concerning race, law, and democracy. She received her B.A. from Harvard University and her J.D. from Columbia Law School. If that were not enough pressure on today's guest host, I'm proud to say that Kristen is also my former boss. So Kristen, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here and really good to see you, Sherrod, uh, in law school and doing so well. As you've probably seen plastered on posters and shirts and pins throughout the school, this year's Public Interest Week theme is connected, reimagining community in the, in the pursuit of justice. Can you take a moment to describe how the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law as an organization is structured and how the projects and initiatives that the organization oversees engages with local communities to promote justice, why this coordination with local communities and local community leaders is so vital, as well as how the organization interfaces with its vast network of private bar attorneys to combat racial discrimination. Yeah, so um, good question. And let me first start off by observing that I think that these are no doubt dark and turbulent times in our country. And I firmly believe that civil rights lawyers are playing an important role in uh, the fight for justice and in standing up for victims of discrimination. And that's exactly what we do at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. You talked a bit about our history, and I'll talk about how we do the work. What makes us unique in the landscape of national civil rights organizations is the breadth and scope of our work in the racial justice space. We are on the front lines of some of the most important battles that are playing out across our country right now, whether you're talking about voter suppression or fighting against the racial disparities that infect our criminal justice system, or 
fighting the Trump administration when they roll back um, critical civil rights rules and protections. Um, we are on the front lines in the courtroom using the rule of law to stand up for victims of discrimination. And we do this work in partnership with law firms across the country. Just a moment to take a step back. Um, you noted that we were founded by President John F. Kennedy. He convened a meeting at the White House. About 240 lawyers attended that meeting with him in June of 1963. And Kennedy's charge to them was, uh, look, we're in the heyday of the civil rights movement and we need lawyers to do more. We need lawyers who are willing to engage in the fight. And um, I love reflecting on that call to action because I find it very relevant to where we are today in 2019. We are at a moment where we need um, more lawyers engaged in the fight. We need um, lawyers at law firms who are willing to channel the resources of their firms to fuel this fight. And that's what we do at the Lawyers Committee um, we, we challenge the private bar to stand shoulder to shoulder with us in the fight for racial justice. Wonderful. Along similar lines, uh, you mentioned the wide array of issues that the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law promotes and works on to ensure racial justice and equality. Many of these issues affect, disproportionately affect African-American communities, but also other communities of color. Uh, in a similar vein, yesterday, many students around the law school had the opportunity to hear Professor Kimberly Crenshaw from UCLA Law School and Columbia Law School, as well as Professor Dorothy Roberts from Penn Law, discuss the intersectionality and the importance to approaching racial justice and civil rights with a frame of mind that often individuals, and especially those from historically marginalized communities and backgrounds, are targeted by various forms of discrimination and prejudice due to many different and multiple components of their identity. In an era where we're seeing at the federal level and in some states almost an intersectional attack on racial justice and civil rights, can you discuss how the Lawyers Committee has prioritized an intersectional approach to defending and enforcing civil rights and racial justice? Well, first, let me say it's heartwarming um, to know that uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw was here yesterday. She was my former professor uh, during my time at Columbia. Um, and so everything just comes full circle in life. Um, so taking an intersectional approach to the work that we do has become really critical in this era. Um, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about immigrants' rights or um, attacks on uh, reproductive access. All of these issues, um, you know, bring to the fore when you really pull back the um, the, the veil, uh, the fact that we're dealing with problems that fall more heavily on people of color. And so one of the things that we try to do is tell that story and think about how we can use civil rights laws to potentially attack some of these problems in different ways. In the Supreme Court right now, there are a number of cases that the court is hearing this term. 
which are ones where we felt we felt it was very important that the justices understand how some of these problems bear more heavily on African-Americans. So there are um, three cases dealing with Title VII and the rights of LGBTQ employees. We um, mobilized an amicus brief on behalf of dozens of groups in the civil rights community where we made a simple point to the court that we think is important that um, one, LGBTQ people uh, do enjoy protections under Title VII, and we made that showing. But we also want the court to know that LGBTQ employees of color are more likely to face discrimination because of the intersectionalities between race and LGBTQ discrimination in our country. Same thing with the abortion cases um, that were um, that are kind of moving through the courts and these abortion bans and restrictions that are emerging in states in the South. Uh, when we look at Louisiana, for example, and the admitting privileges law that is now going to be reviewed by um, the Supreme Court. Um, it's important that we talk about the fact that Louisiana is one of the poorest states in the country and has one of the largest black populations and huge health care disparities. And so we know that this is a restriction that absolutely will have a starker impact on low income African-American women and people of color. It's really important uh, as we fight these fights that um, we unpack those details and and talk about some of the intersectionalities that are at play in these various struggles. Mm -hmm. Um, If we could, I'd I'd like to jump to technology and the tech industry for a minute. Uh, Technology has added a new component in the fight for civil rights, good and bad. While there are technology and online platforms uh, being utilized by community, community leaders, national leaders, and others throughout the country to organize and mobilize around civil rights and racial justice issues, many racist white nationalists and white supremacist groups also use technology to push their racial, racist messaging and recruit new members more than ever. Than, more than ever. Can you discuss how the Lawyers Committee has adapted to this challenge and how the organization is holding technology companies accountable when their products are being used to further racist ideology? Yeah, you know, hate crimes are on the rise. Um, We're seeing um, spikes in white supremacist activity, and I think that this is one of the gravest threats to democracy right now and something that's really pulling at the fabric of our nation. Um, But... You are right, Sherrod, that thinking about how white supremacists exploit online platforms is a really important area, and it is an area that we look at very closely at the Lawyers Committee. Um, You know, in um, in decades past, white supremacists may have been marching on the streets. Today, they are marching hoodless. Today, they are behind computer screens. Today, they are on online platforms, figuring out how to recruit new members, how to fundraise, how to target victims, how to broadcast their dangerous activities and um, work to hold social media platforms accountable for failing to do more to police these spaces um, is something that we are calling out. Uh, We recently did some work with Facebook, which maintained a policy that is um, really indefensible and uncomprehensible. 
Facebook had a policy in place in which they deemed white supremacist activity and content banned, but white nationalist and white separatist activity okay. And um, this is a distinction without a difference. And we got a hold of their training materials and found out that they were largely relying on Wikipedia for the definitions of these dangerous ideologies. And they really, frankly, did not have uh, meaningful knowledge of, um, you know, what all of these dangerous racist ideologies look like today. After a lot of advocacy on our part, and there were other organizations doing work here, um, we were able to get Facebook to abandon this policy. And uh, now all of these dangerous uh, ideologies are, are banned on the platform. Um, this is part of the work that we have to do if we're going to win the fight against hate in our country. Absolutely. And I remember during my time at the Lawyers Committee a few years ago, I think uh, the Stop Hate Project kind of uh, communicated and, and conducted some outreach to web.com to help shut down stormfront.org, if I'm not mistaken, during a vital time when I believe it was shortly after the racist march in Charlottesville uh, was filling news channels around the country. Um, and I think different white supremacists and dangerous uh, racist ideology and ideological associated groups were conducting and attempting to conduct recruiting off of those efforts. Do you mind providing a couple details on, on that effort? Yeah. Well, this is work that I'm really proud of um, because I think that it is, it is critical and it's another way that we as lawyers can um, use different kinds of tools outside the courtroom to push for reform going after web hosts that prop up these dangerous sites is an important aspect of this fight. And it was, I think, um, important and impactful to think about how we could use that moment after Charlottesville, where the whole country is alarmed at what happened and alarmed at the death of Heather Heyer to think about the pressure points that we could apply in the world. And, um, it was fantastic to go after the web host here for Stormfront, the world's largest and longest running hate site online, and to get that web host to pull uh, Stormfront offline for the first time in its 25-year history, I think, was an important fight. And while that site may be back up now, we understand that there's a Canadian platform, a Canadian company that's now hosting the site. And... We've been um, pushing and keeping pressure on them. Um, that two months of darkness helped to obstruct the white supremacist movement at a really important time. And I think that, um, you know, that is a victory in the fight, uh, maybe a small V victory. But anything that we can do to make it harder for white supremacists to, with ease, carry out their dangerous activity um, to me, is an important part of the work that we must do today. I want to note um, that this work actually um, got started off of some creative thinking from one of our law interns, and I think um, powerfully illustrates the way in which law students can have real impact in the work that civil rights lawyers are doing today. Excellent. Thank you. Um, just taking a step back, what inspired you to pursue a career in racial justice and public interest? 
When did you know that this was the legal career path that you wanted to embark on? Was this career visions? Was this a career vision that you had since your childhood, or was there an educational and professional experience that kind of catalyzed that inspiration and that uh, pursuit? Yeah, I knew that I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer from kind of high school, maybe my junior year. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Um, the daughter of Jamaican immigrants, and um, I grew up knowing what it means to to struggle. Um, I know I knew what it means to be poor. Um, I knew what you know racism looks like and the impact that it can have on communities. Um, I know what isolation uh, means. And uh, I got a chance to go to a boarding school in Connecticut that was worlds apart from my experience in Brooklyn, Um, a beautiful campus where, um, you know, I had amazing teachers and fantastic courses and all kinds of extracurricular activities like cross country and uh, photography. And um, that was, you know, definitely... Um, my first time experiencing what privilege looks like, what access to virtually every opportunity uh, one could want looks like when it comes to kind of, you know, um, education. And I think that it's always left me feeling very, very uncomfortable having had the chance to straddle those two very different worlds at such a, a, you know, at a young, formative age. And At some point, I just very firmly decided that, you know, I'm really lucky that there are a lot of people out here who deserve the opportunity that I'm getting. And um, there are more people, frankly, who should have that opportunity, more people of color, more African-Americans, more Latinos. We were woefully underrepresented um, on our boarding school campus and... um, I just decided that civil rights lawyers have the tools in their back pocket to really address some of these racial injustices, these gaps, really have um, ways to address racial inequality, and um, just decided that that's the work I wanted to do and have never looked back. And I fortunately have loved every day um, that I've gotten to be out in the world as a civil rights lawyer. I think that we um, are a source of hope, I, I hope, <laughs> uh, when times feel dark. I think that um, it is rewarding to think about, you know, standing up for victims of discrimination, giving them voice. I think about um, the struggles that people endure and building cases that might help to address the problems they face. And um, I think this is really important work. Absolutely. And when you were throughout the high school experience and as a law student and beyond in your legal profession and career, are there any particular civil rights attorneys or leaders in the civil rights movement more broadly that you looked up to as heroes and were inspired by? Yes. Um, Dr. Manning Marable, who um, is no longer with us, he passed away a few years ago, but was a 
um, history of um, African-American studies at Columbia University. When I was in law school, I spent a lot of time with Dr. Marable um, working on a journal focused on the black struggle. Um, I taught an intro to African-American studies course with him. I organized a conference, a national conference on uh, race and the criminal justice system. Um, he was a black scholar kind of um, at an Ivy League school, but beyond the ivory tower, he believed very much in producing scholarship that was um, responsive to the real issues that black people are facing on the ground in our country. And um, I learned a lot from getting to work um, with him. Um, he passed away just shortly before his um, autobiography on Malcolm X came out, an important part of his life's work. Um, and most definitely, he's kind of shaped how I think about, um, you know, my approach to civil rights work um, and my, uh, uh, you know, a approach to doing racial justice work. I think it's important that we speak truth to power and that we do this work with integrity and that we do this work in a way that is um, truly driven by the real issues, challenges, and problems that black people are facing in our country today. And um, yeah, grateful for the time that I got to work with him. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, throughout your career, our listeners probably noted you have worked in a variety of, of settings throughout your racial justice and civil rights oriented career, um, whether it's uh, legal and advocacy organizations outside of government, such as the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, or LDF, uh, as a prosecutor and trial attorney in government offices like the Department of Justice or the Civil Rights Bureau of the New York State Attorney General's Office, or as an author. Can you please compare and contrast these experiences and describe which of these platforms you believe is most effective for effectuating progress on racial justice issues? Yeah, I feel very lucky to have gotten to wear many different hats as a civil rights lawyer. Um, working, starting off my career at the Justice Department was um, was interesting. Um, the Justice Department has vast resources um, at its disposal. Amazingly smart career lawyers who I learned a whole lot from, um, and the agenda of the Justice Department, you know, at the end of the day, it's very much set by leadership. Um, at the Justice Department, you are, uh, you know, your client is the United States. You stand up and you are standing up in court on behalf of the United States. Um, I enjoyed getting the chance to start my career off there. I think I got great training, um, great feedback, um, you know, the chance to sometimes uh, work on police brutality cases alongside FBI agents, um, just a lot of resources. The, um, you know, working at a national nonprofit organization like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, like LDF, your client is not the United States. It's, it's the people on the ground. It's the uh, community that you represent, the victim that you're serving. And, um, it's very different, a very different kind of civil rights lawyering when, um, you know, you can be very open and forthright about the fact that you are standing up for aggrieved people. You're fighting for, you know, aggrieved individuals and and um, 
and give give them voice in the context of this work. Um, and doing this work inside the government just feels very different in that regard. The, the, the difference, though, is that, you know, when you're in a national nonprofit organization, you don't have access to the unique powers and resources of the government. And the Justice Department is a behemoth of an agency. And with strong leadership, there is the potential to have tremendous impact in the world. Um, at national nonprofit organizations, you're fighting fights that um, can be long and protracted and grueling, but righteous. But um, it is one thing that made those experiences different. Um, at the state attorney general's office, same thing. Your client there, you know, you're standing up in court on behalf of the people of the state of New York. And um, at the same time, what made that office and that experience different is the, 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 the tools you've got in your arsenal. The New York State Attorney General's office has the ability and power to um, enforce federal civil rights law, state civil rights law, uh, local civil rights laws adopted in places like New York City and Buffalo. And when you combine the sheer total um, of, of those laws, you can do a lot of work. There are, you know, protected groups under state law that are not reached or captured by federal law. Um, city laws sometimes are at the cutting edge of fighting, you know, new forms of discrimination that may be rearing their ugly head. Um, so that was a really great experience and a chance to do civil, right, civil rights work in a setting that was very, very dynamic and where we were on our feet a lot and able to really crack out a lot of good settlements and good results in litigation because of the, the unique powers of the state attorney general in New York. Absolutely. And for many of our listeners and uh, law students around the country are folks that are interested in pursuing racial justice and civil rights related and oriented careers in government and outside of government. Did you find throughout your career trajectory thus far that some of the lessons you took from state government or federal government are applicable to each other and to your work at LDF or your, your current work with the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law? Well, the common thread is a desire for me personally, a desire to to win, to be successful, to get results, to secure relief for the victims or communities at hand. And um, that that is one thing that I think, um, you know, is a commonality in all of these different roles. It, it is, you know, approaching the work with the same level of commitment and seriousness and really thinking about kind of, you know, getting a, the, the right outcome, leaving no stone unturned, dotting every I, crossing every T. Um, that, that for me is the one thing that's, um, you know, been the same across the board in all of these different roles. Absolutely. We're living in a time when there are attempts by government officials to roll back hard-fought advances in racial justice and other social justice issues on many different fronts. How has this administration's almost daily bombardment of public statements, policies, and actions that seek to undercut the historical gains in racial justice shaped the way the Lawyers Committee has fought to defend these advances? Has the Lawyers Committee had to make any adjustments in, to its approach to promoting racial justice in this current climate? Yeah, um, 
We are firing on all cylinders 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, that's the pace that it feels like we're operating at in this era. I mean, no doubt this is a very unique moment in our democracy. And I think that um, what we all do right now matters. And um, I feel really fortunate and blessed. I think we have an amazing team at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law that feels um, a deep concern about the direction that our country is going in and feels um, troubled and disturbed by all of the rollbacks on the civil rights front. I know that um, the, the, the statements that we hear from President Trump are alarming and unsettling. Because I think about the reality that we face right now, which is one in which hate crimes are on the rise. That's not anecdotal. FBI data shows a real rise in hate crimes. And we hear the suffering by way of our Stop Hate Project at the Lawyers Committee. And it's hard not to connect the dots between some of the statements coming from the White House about African-Americans and people in Caribbean and African nations and um, and not think that, you know, the, the, the words, the actions, the rollbacks on protections for, you know, LGBTQ people, um, the rollbacks on civil rights laws, the promotion of voter suppression. It's hard to not kind of connect that to this environment uh, that we're all seeing, experiencing and feeling uh, and 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 not be troubled. So. What we are doing is we are remaining remaining focused to the task at hand, which is doing our work and doing that work with um, seriousness and intentionality, and um, and no doubt we are we're working really hard. We are filing lots of lawsuits and um, and we're prevailing. Not in everyone, but we're uh, prevailing. And to me, the work of civil rights lawyers is an important part of. Um, I think the hope that people are looking for right now. Mm -hmm. Related to this topic, uh, listeners at the top of the podcast heard details about your accomplished career in civil rights. And you know as well as anyone that working to advance racial justice, civil rights, and social justice is extremely gratifying and fulfilling work. In times like the present when we're seeing a spike in hate crimes across the country, as well as hateful policies and divisive rhetoric coming from many public officials, it can, be, it can also be frustrating and vexing and emotionally fraught. In my personal conversations around Penn Law, I've spoken with many students who are energized and committed to joining the fight to advance racial justice and civil rights by going to work for organizations like the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, which is great. But what I do not hear often is a recognition of the importance of self-care in order to sustain longevity in this career path. It seems as though working to defend and advance racial justice requires an inherent optimism that we can fundamentally change different segments of society so that it is more open and inclusive to individuals of different backgrounds, religions, ethnicities, races, and really any intersectional form of identity. Can you discuss how you personally have prioritized self-care to help you sustain a career in racial justice and to help you guard the inherent optimism and how the Lawyers Committee, uh, as an organization, prioritizes self, the self-care of its staff, especially in times when there seems to be so many individuals in public life that are actively attempting to undermine the generational gains in racial justice and civil rights 
or stand silently by as others attempt to do so. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an important question that touches on many important issues. I think that there are many organizations doing this work who are operating with the looming fear of burnout, and we can't afford that. Um, I also think that this this work is not easy in this era and has demanded everything from all of us. Um, for me personally, um, my son is kind of my outlet. I am mom to a 10th grader. He's 15, and he is a soccer lover. Um, he, uh, you know, practices four days a week, and I try to pull my weight on carpool at least one day a week, um, games on the weekend. And um, I'll tell you the one thing that I hate on the sidelines are parents who want to talk about what's going on in the country. Um, I really enjoy kind of turning the clock off during um, during soccer and just, you know, being in the moment and um, and, and watching my kid go um, on the field. Um, and I think, you know, self-care for everybody looks really different and um, is important. But I do think that, you know, it's also important to acknowledge that um, this is not normal. Um, this is just a really unique and dark time in our country. And I think that um, civil rights lawyers at the Lawyers Committee and at many organizations are working over time to fight back and um and, and we all have to kind of find our outlet and our way to sustain ourselves when we're not engaged in the work. Thank you. So we're getting close to our time, but I think we have enough time for one more question. I think it's important to note that just over a week ago, we lost a civil rights champion and inspirational leader to so many people around the country, including lawyers, advocates, organizers, and community leaders and others who are working to further racial justice and civil rights and equality. A man who many knew as the moral voice of conscious clarity and truth. Can you take a moment to reflect on how Congressman Elijah Cummings impacted your work at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law and at other stages throughout your career, and how the Lawyers Committee will continue to honor his legacy by defending and furthering racial justice and civil rights? Yeah, um... May he rest in peace. Um, he had a long uh, career in public service, 36 years of combined service in the Maryland House of Dele Delegates and in Congress, and um, no doubt served the people of Baltimore um, well and um, with pride and distinction. And he was a leader in the House. And um we will we will miss him dearly. I know on the night that he passed, um, the House was holding hearings on restoration of the Voting Rights Act. And, you know, I think that everyone is soldiering on, um, but his spirit, um, you know, will live on in this work. Um, you know, I also sadly think about, you know, the attacks from the president on the city of Baltimore and the attacks on the late Congressman Cummings, again, just a reminder about the darkness of these times. And um, to me, what I think we need to hold on to is, you know, the fact that this is someone who gave nearly four decades of his life to um, serving the people um, and, and um, you know, focusing on the 
um, all of the issues that impact, you know, people in um, uh, the city of Baltimore, but frankly, all across our nation. So um, may he rest in peace. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us as this year's honorary fellow in residence for Public Interest Week and for joining us on this episode. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Conversations About Justice. Uh, we hope that you gained a lot from this inspirational and insightful conversation. And we look forward to having you tune in to the next episode. Mm-hmm.